0: Thank you for listening to the Collective Church podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church you connect with, you belong here. Right now, Collective is fully online, so if you like the podcast, make sure to check us out on Facebook at My Collective Church on Sunday mornings at 9.25 a.m. for Collective Online. We would love for you to join us. A lot of big things are going on at Collective, so make sure not to miss a week this fall, as we will be sharing about how God is moving in our church and what is next for Collective. Now, let's get into today's message. The first time I ever met my wife's family, I was a freshman in college. We were just friends at the time, aka she friend-zoned me real hard, but she invited me over to her parents' house for dinner to celebrate her birthday, which is not something you do with someone you just want to be friends with, but whatever, I digress. So we drove a few hours down to Chattanooga, And when I walked in the door, I was greeted by her parents, her siblings, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, her cousin's kids, and her grandma, not at all intimidating or overwhelming. After spending some time hanging out and getting to know each other, we all sat around the dinner table and ate Ray's favorite meal, Tex-Mex. And I was watching and listening as her family told stories and shared laughs and just had a really good time. And in the middle of the conversation, while they were ooing and aahing over the newest baby cousin who was just a few weeks old, Ray's grandma looked at baby Peyton and said, You look just like great grandma. And grandma had a stroke when she was 30. And listen, in that moment, I had no idea what to do. This wasn't my family. I wasn't sure if grandma and Nanny shouted out random things. At all dinners, I didn't know if this was intentional, so I just tried not to stare. And after what felt like an eternity of silence, Ray's dad broke the awkward tension by going, wah, wah, and everyone started to laugh. And of course, if you're a fan of SNL, You know that her dad was referencing one of the most iconic skits of all time about a character named Debbie Downer who somehow turns every good moment into a Downer. You know who's excited about Christmas? The credit card companies. It's hard to sleep knowing you share your bed with thousands of hungry dust mites. Thanks, Hugh Downs. This just in, Santa overcome by hypothermia, millions go giftless. But here's the thing. We kind of get it we kind of understand where Debbie Downer is coming from because it's easier to choose pessimism and negativity or despair. In fact, most people remember experiences that affect them negatively more than positive ones. This phenomenon is called negativity bias. The negativity bias is the tendency for humans to pay more attention or give more weight to negative experiences over neutral or positive experiences. Even when the negative experiences are inconsequential. So as humans, we tend to focus on the negative. So with that being true, today we're closing out our perspective series by talking about joy. Joy is a major theme in the book of Philippians which we've been reading over the past few weeks. In fact, the best way to explain Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is choosing joy in times of suffering. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 1, I rejoice And I'll continue to rejoice. Or Philippians 2, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life. Or again in Philippians 2, yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. Or Philippians 3, what we read last week, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So over the past few weeks, we've talked about how we get to choose our perspective when it comes to the highs and lows of life. Like how we're in control about how we see and respond to the trials we face. And today is all about how we can choose joy. Now, I'm not talking about happiness, and this is really important, because I believe that we often confuse joy and happiness, and there's a big difference. Happiness is a feeling. Psychology Today explains it like this. Happiness is external. It's based on situations, events, people, places, things, and thoughts, Happiness is future-oriented, and it puts all its eggs in someone else's basket. It's dependent on outside circumstances, other people, or uncontrollable, uncontrollable events to align with your expectations, so the end result is your happiness. Here's an example. You get a new car, you're happy. But if you get into an accident on your way home from the dealership, your happiness is gone. If you get a raise at your job, you're thrilled. But if you find out that your rent is going up, your smile goes away. Or you find out it's pumpkin spice season at Starbucks and you're ecstatic. But then you finish your latte and you have a PSL-shaped hole in your heart for the rest of the day. Happiness can go away in a moment's notice. But joy, joy is something that goes deeper than happiness. Joy is a choice. And one of the best biblical definitions of joy that I've read comes from a pastor named Rick Warren, and this is how he explains joy. He says, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every circumstance. You see, joy is not circumstantial. Joy is not based on money or relationships or sports. Joy is consistent and rests on the foundation that God is in control in the both good and the bad. So that's why Paul writes in Philippians 4, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Now I've seen some Christians who think that we should just rejoice at everything, even the bad things. I lost my job. Rejoice. My parents are getting divorced. Rejoice. A friend betrayed me. Rejoice. And unfortunately, I've seen some Christians who believe that we should never cry at funerals or think they shouldn't be disappointed if a relationship doesn't work out or will tell people not to lament missing out on something that they had their heart set on. But that isn't what Paul is saying here. He isn't rejoicing in the fact that he's in prison. He isn't rejoicing in the fact that he's facing a possible execution. He isn't rejoicing in the fact that the church in Philippi is struggling. He's simply saying that in spite of the trials that he faces, he can have joy because he knows that God is with him. He can rejoice because he still has hope in Jesus. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Always be full of joy. In the Lord, So Paul is encouraging the Philippians and us throughout this entire book to choose joy, to shift our perspectives toward the joy that Jesus offers. But there are a few things that Paul talks about in this section of his letter that seem to get in the way of joy, that interrupt joy in our lives and specifically in the church. Now, they don't take away joy unless we let them because joy is a choice, but they disrupt joy. And the first one Is a lack of unity. Check out how Paul starts this letter to the church in Philippians. He writes Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. Now, we don't know what their disagreement was, but it was big enough that Paul heard about it all the way in Rome, 4,608 miles away. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but Paul hated disunity in the church. He spoke out against it in multiple letters to multiple churches and urged people to live in harmony with one another. So Paul is pleading with them to settle their argument, to forgive one another. He's asking the church to actually help these two women work toward unity because disunity interrupts joy. And this is just how I feel but I think this is one of the reasons why so many of us are struggling right now, why we feel mentally and emotionally exhausted every time we open up our email or go on social media or check in on the news. There's a complete lack of unity in our world right now. And yes, every day there seems to be more and more bad news, but we've experienced trials before as individuals and as a nation. We've experienced a down economy We've seen racial injustice. We've battled viruses. We've watched as natural disasters destroy cities with ease. We've suffered loss. And the truth is, we've experienced multiple of these types of things at the same time before. So why does it feel so heavy right now? Why is it so hard to find joy in this season? I think that one of the reasons why a seemingly terrible season feels even worse is because there is a lack of unity And I think Paul would agree. And let me be incredibly clear. Having unity doesn't mean that every person has to be a carbon copy of each other and think the same thing and look the same and act the same. And I talked about this a few weeks ago in a sermon titled, Choose Others. That's not unity. Unity isn't about who you are voting for. It isn't about where you stand on certain political issues. It isn't about your opinion when it comes to masks or schools or sports. It's about whether or not you put others first, whether or not you care about your neighbors, whether or not you are selfish. Striving for unity is about desiring what is best for everyone, not just yourself. And I think one of the biggest trials that we are facing is that we don't put other people's interest over our own. And that leads to what the world looks like right now. That leads to social media posts that you waste countless hours arguing back and forth over. That leads to a lot of people trying to cause pain, division, frustration, whatever. And that disunity gets in the way of joy. Because here's the thing. It's really easy to get along with people that you disagree with when you know that they love you. You can have unity with people that you don't agree with because you know they want what's best for you. That they care about you, that they're praying for you, that they aren't just having conversations with you just to prove themselves right. A lack of unity interrupts joy. And one of the solutions for this is actually found in verse five. This is what Paul writes Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. If you lack unity in your life, in your family, in your relationships, you need to let everyone know you are considerate and everything that you do. It really is that simple. And here are just a few examples of what being considerate looks like: choosing empathy and understanding people's pain, choosing being a peacemaker, choosing lifting others up and encouraging them, choosing being a solution and not just someone who points out the problems. Disunity interrupts. Joy. Now, the second thing that interrupts joy is worrying. Paul writes this, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Worrying interrupts joy. And sometimes we have a lot of things to worry about. We worry about our jobs. We worry about whether or not our kids are going to be okay. We worry about if we're going to get sick or our house payments, whatever it is. There are a lot of different things that we can worry about. But that's why Jesus asked this question in Matthew 6. He asked, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Jesus understands that we have a lot to worry about, that this consumes our mind, it consumes our peace, it consumes our joy. But Jesus also understands that worrying doesn't give us anything. Did you know that clinical studies have found that only 8% of the things you worry about actually happen. The other 92% are in our imagination or they never come to pass or they're ultimately things that we didn't have control over anyway. So Jesus says, can all of your worry add a single moment to your life? One of my top five favorite authors is a woman named Brene Brown. She's a professor, lecturer, author, TED Talk veteran who talks about vulnerability. I've read her book, Daring Greatly and Deadly, multiple times. I even have the framed quote from Man in the Arena, which she quotes in multiple of her books. It's in my office. And one of the things that Brene Brown writes about is that uh, this idea of foreboding joy. Here's what she says. If you cannot tolerate joy, what you do is start dress rehearsing tragedy. Dress rehearsing tragedy is imagining something bad is going to happen when in reality, nothing is wrong. And she asks... How many of you ever stood over your child while they were sleeping and thought, I love you, and then pictured something horrific happening, or woke up in the morning and thought, my job's going great, my parents are good, this can't last. Calling joy terrifying may sound strange, but Brene Brown explains that this fear stems from having our joy taken away, and then that joy becomes foreboding. I'm worried that it's going to be taken away or the other shoe's going to drop. So we can worry so much that we interrupt our joy. So Paul says, if you struggle with worry, if you struggle with foreboding joy instead of having actual joy, one of the first steps in bringing that joy back into your life and overcoming that worry is to pray. That's why Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which, is, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So Paul shares, instead of worrying, we should pray. We should tell God the things that we're struggling with. We should thank God for his goodness and how he has shown up in our lives. And the result of that is a peace that exceeds anything that we could ever understand. And that brings joy. The third thing that Paul talks about in this chapter of Philippians that interrupts joy is discontentment. He writes this, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And then he actually says one of the most famous Bible verses of all time, Philippians 4:13. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. When I was 18, this was my first tattoo. I drove out to a really shady tattoo parlor in Manassas, Virginia, and a guy free-handed it on my wrist. I have many, many regrets. But what I don't regret is having this constant reminder from Paul tattooed on me so that I can be reminded of this daily. And while this verse is often misquoted and twisted, and it isn't about flying or x-ray vision or whatever you think you want— What Paul is saying is that in all circumstances, I have what I need because I have Christ. It's about the idea that whether we have a little or a lot, whether in storm or in peace, whether in the good or the bad, we have everything we need if we have Jesus. We are full of joy in the Lord. The problem is that we live in a world where one of the main messages from society is more is better And we're constantly being told that our phone isn't new enough, our car isn't fast enough, our house isn't big enough, our clothes aren't cool enough. We often find ourselves discontent with life and we're living in this pursuit for the next big thing that only leads us to the next pursuit and the next pursuit and the next pursuit. Because the reality is that we'll never have enough money or popularity or stuff to be joyful because discontentment interrupts Joy. So we can choose joy. And while there are things in our life that get in the way of joy, like disunity and worry and discontentment and realistically a lot more, we still have the opportunity to choose joy every single day. Because joy is not something that happens. It's not controlled by other people or other things. It's a choice you are making. It's a perspective that you have. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Now, some of you at the beginning of my message heard that we're talking about joy and you immediately thought this wasn't for me, right? Because things in your life aren't right, right? You think your life is too messed up right now to have joy or you're too broken to be joyful. There's nothing in your life to be joyful about, But Paul is telling you that this message is exactly for you because joy isn't contingent on your trials. It isn't contingent on what you own. It isn't contingent on other people, right? Joy is a choice to dwell on what God has done for you. And the whole catch for this thing is that you have to have Jesus to have real joy. And if you accept him, if you choose him to be the leader of your life, if you choose to say yes to that joy, His spirit comes and it lives inside of you. And then you know you have eternal life and you're gonna be with him in heaven forever. So you know that regardless of what is going on in this world right now, regardless of what is going on at your job with the sickness or with kids or with whatever else is going wrong or could go wrong, you know your eternal future is secure in Jesus Christ. And God is redeeming you regardless of your circumstances. And that gives you joy. So even when everything in your life is a storm, when the sickness doesn't go away or the results aren't what you wanted or the relationship ended or the dreams didn't come true or whatever else is going the opposite direction of how you want it to go and has no hope of getting better, you still have joy because God is with you. Because joy is knowing that God is in control and that he loves you, that he'll never leave you you don't have to go at this life alone, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how broken you are, regardless of how intense the storm is, God loves you. You don't have to just take my word for it. Check out what Hebrews 12 says. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The author writes, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. There's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. And he once asked an interesting question about this verse in Hebrews. He asked, what was the joy set before Jesus? What was it? It says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, which was the most excruciating kind of death known to mankind during that time. What was the great joy that led Jesus to the cross? Was it glory? He had glory. Was it God? He was God. Was it the father? He had the father. Was it heaven? He was in heaven. What was the joy that would make him endure this type of death? The only thing he didn't have was you, was me. Was us. So, for everyone who's watching this, Jesus left the comfort of heaven for you. Jesus experienced humiliation for you. Jesus endured pain for you. Jesus conquered death for you because you were the joy that set him free. You, like, seriously, you. So the reason why Paul can talk about joy and suffering is because he has the fundamental understanding that there is a God who loves him, sin and all, brokenness and all, disunity, worry, discontentment and all, storms and all. And there isn't anything better than that. And no, it doesn't make sense. And no, we do not deserve it, but it doesn't matter because Jesus did it anyway, because he loves you. And he wants you to experience the joy of knowing that he is always with you. And it's something that you can actually choose to have in your life. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, that begins by choosing joy by putting your faith in him and getting baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, It's something you do every day when you wake up and remind yourself that you are free because of the grace of Jesus. You are forgiven because of his love for you. You have hope because he is with you. You have peace because he is in control. You have joy because he is the creator of the universe and thinks you are important. And you are his joy. Let's pray. God, we don't understand um, why you love us so much. God, we don't understand um, why you would send your, your son and why he would give up his own life for us. Because God, we are, we're messed up. We're messy. We're broken. God, we do the wrong things. We say the wrong things. God, we're angry. God, we, we keep falling short. And yet we read this verse which talks about the fact that we were the joy awaiting you. And God, while we don't understand it, we are so thankful for that. God, we're thankful for the amount of love and grace and hope and peace that you offer us. God, we're thankful for the fact that you look at us, brokenness and all, sin and all, when we are doing our worst thing and you think my joy is in being in a relationship with that person, with that broken, messed up, outcast person. God, I pray as we struggle with this season Um, As we've talked over the last few weeks about how we can change our perspective, God, ultimately, the number one thing I hope for every single person listening is now, in the next few months, the next few years, that ultimately, God, they choose you. God, and they choose what you offer and the hope that you offer and the peace that you offer and the joy that you offer and the freedom that you offer. God, thank you for doing that. We don't understand it, and we know that we don't deserve it, but we're so appreciative of it. God, help us live with this joy. God, we love you and pray this things. your name. Amen.